I'm Maggie McKay, and you're listening to The Post-Purity Project, a podcast that explores life, love, and sex after purity culture. In this episode, we talk to Annie, a 33-year-old woman who lives both in San Francisco and in East Africa, where she directs a nonprofit working for education and economic stability. She was raised in suburban Texas in a Southern Baptist community in the 90s. You'll hear what she learned about sex as a kid, what led her to get married at age 20, and how she recovered her sexuality after an affair shattered everything she held dear. I grew up in Waco, Texas, which is a very conservative place in the Bible Belt, in a very conservative evangelical Baptist culture. So in my youth group, True Love Waits was a huge, huge thing. Um, I was reading things like Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye. A lot of my information, though, about sex came from uh, books. I didn't ever really feel comfortable talking to my mom about sex, and I wouldn't really let her talk to me about it very much. And then youth group stuff was like, just don't do it. So there was like almost no outlet. There was like no, no one who was capable of having a conversation about healthy sexuality with me in terms of like, what do you do with all these adolescent feelings? What were the messages you were getting about what do I do with all these adolescent feelings? The messages that I at least interpreted was just like, pray them away. Mm. You just pray until they dissipate, which for an adolescent, like, that's doesn't exactly work. I mean, I don't think that works anyway. I feel like folks in the church are going to know what that means to try to pray something away. But mm. people who were not raised in the church are going to be like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically what that means is you repress your sexual desires, whatever they are, mm -hmm. um, whether you're just like an adolescent who's like, ah, I, I, I want another human <laughs> or if you or if it's homosexuality or, or yeah, any any sexuality, really. Um, mm -hmm. You basically repress it using prayer language uh you would form some sort of prayer of like god please take this temptation away from me i think a lot of it got framed as temptation what would a temptation look like or like even, i mean it can be specific to your experience yeah so for my experience it was even just having sexual desire like i think i was on the extreme of like shut down i never masturbated hmm. i'd only ever kissed one person and i I wouldn't before I got married, the person I married. Um, but we like dated in high school and I would not kiss him. Had he come from a similar background? Similar enough, not really as not really as severe as I interpreted it. And I also want to recognize that part of it was like my interpretation of what I was hearing. Like, what were people actually saying? Was I just interpreting this in a crazy way? I mean, I think that it was there. Well, but. Okay, I I can hear what you're saying with interpretations, but then also I want to point out like how old were you? You know. Yeah. That's cool that you want to take some responsibility for your own brainwashing, but um <laughs> I mean, but you were a child. Yeah, and I'm I'm not trying to excuse this at all cuz I don't think it's I I don't think it's healthy in any way shape or form. Mm -hmm. I think what I want to do is like if anyone was even trying to nuance it that that did not come through at all it was like shut it down turn it off 
it being sexuality. Mm -hmm. Shut your sexuality down. Turn it all the way off unless you're married. Mm -hmm. And then turn it on. And magically it will all be okay. (laughs) Yeah. I asked Annie to share any Bible verses or specific teachings she remembers from her time in youth group. Yeah, I think at this point I probably remember themes and motifs. So I'll give you mm-hmm. I'll give you some of that. One, the using of Paul's flesh's evil language in Romans, that was just like the core. Like that was the heartbeat of sex is bad, I think mm-hmm. in many ways. And that was coming from a bigger thing of like your bodies are bad and I or even bigger than that, the belief that first and foremost, we are sinners. So first and foremost, we are bad in general. So then you work back to the flesh is bad and sex is like one of the most embodied flesh things we can do. There's some other letters in the Bible or books of the Bible, especially the New Testament, that talk about one man, one wife. Fornication is commonly listed in a series of sins, and this is like throughout the New Testament, so things like debauchery, fornication, malice, the people who do these things will be in hell. The Baptist tradition is very staunchly rooted in we are sinners first. I keep I'm keep repeating this like the overarching message is you're bad. I mean, obviously, they drove that one home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I took that so severely, you know, it's really common for every human in, to have a development phase when you're like five to seven or nine or whatever, where you like pretend to have sex with your other little friends because you're like curious, which I did that a lot and then would get in trouble for that. The details are so fuzzy of just like me and this other girl like hid in some closet and like touched each other basically. And then we, I don't know how adults found out, but then it was like a really big deal where they were like interviewing us separately about what we had done or things, things like that. And like, well, how, it was just this very intense thing that all eventually turned into this really intense guilt from, from just being like under the age of 10 and to the point where I I was very like closed off even to myself, to my own body. Uh, My friends in high school called me trench coat because that's how like I was, that's how shut down I was about my body. So, and like masturbation was definitely way off limits in purity culture. Like that was also considered like not being faithful to your future spouse. Like even when I was 20, uh, a friend of mine she like came to me crying one day and like confessing and like I've been masturbating or I've been masturbating again. And it it's this big confession deal. You know, you don't want teenagers to have sex with each other. I mean, theoretically, you and let's say in uh, purity culture, you don't want teenagers to have sex with each other. You don't want them to have sex with themselves. You don't want them to look at pornography. You don't want them to do anything that's related to this like raging hormonal process yeah I would like lay in bed awake sometimes being like I just I mean I'm putting words into my own mind because I didn't really have them at that time but it was basically like I just need to have sex and there was like nothing except frame it as a negative temptation 
that I needed to pray away. I think another another element that we haven't talked about is the whole gender um, good wife mm. part of purity culture. I mean, I know men who have had the same experience of like, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. But there's this other element of on the wife side, uh, Proverbs 31 is a poem basically in the Bible about the perfect godly woman. And I actually remember nothing about what it says at all. It says she's far above rubies. I know that. It's a lot of like submissive stuff. I think there's also just a lot of flowery language where he's yeah. like, she's a babe. She's amazing. She's awesome. She's like wifey. So good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that we're talking about this and like, you know, I don't even know the last time I read that. I just remember it being this very big deal in my youth group, Proverbs 31, of what a godly woman was supposed to look like. There was a formula. Okay. Pause for a second. I cracked my Bible. Yes, I still have one to do some fact checking. My recollection of Proverbs 31 was only half right. The first nine verses are a school marmy exhortation from King Lemuel's mother, whoever the hell she is, warning of the dangers of strong drink and loose women. The famous bit starts at verse 10. A wife of noble character, who can find? Her price is far above rubies. Then goes on to describe a super industrious woman who's confident and hardworking. There's a lot of talk of textile fabrication and marketing as well. It culminates by saying charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She actually sounds like a partner in the relationship and not like a submissive pushover at all. I guess I was mixing up my Old Testament and New Testament wifey requirements. And then another woman, um, Stormy O'Mardian. So she wrote the book, The Power of a Praying Wife. I started reading that and just like that became part of my superstitious practice of like I needed to pray for my husband in all of these very specific kinds of ways for his spirituality, for all of these things. None of these things like in isolation are like the worst thing ever, right? But it's it's this whole, like you said, the culture of all of these voices. So there's a thing in, in Christianity, the man is the head of the household. He's the spiritual mm-hmm. head of the household. Mm-hmm. He is supposed to be the one that leads his family in a godly direction. Right. And the wife is the supporting role. Yeah, exactly. And part of what it means to be a person is to get married and have children. That validates you as a woman. Right. If you get married and have children. Right. And I mean, that's been like in a sort of transition, but that was still very present, you know, when I was growing up that you get married, you do your wifely duties. Wifely duties. Basically, code for being ready to have sex whenever your husband wants, whether you do or not. Annie told me about how she and her husband got together. They met in high school, and though they went their separate ways after graduating, a friend's funeral brought them back together. I have to think that emotions running that high, like, had something to do with, like, we had this, we were having intense conversations, and it was like, came out like, hey, I I think I'm in love with you, but I'm not sure. And then he was like, yeah, same here. And then at that point, we got married pretty quickly. And I, I am positive that sex was a factor in how quickly we got married. Yeah, actually, this is almost embarrassing. I just am remembering that. So a story is that Thanksgiving of 2003, um, I was with him and his family. His sister um, doesn't, like she didn't have any of the Christian purity culture stuff 
going on for her. And so she just like put up a mattress for both of us in this room. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Like, there you go. Like you sleep there. And I remember like us trying so hard not to have sex, but just like not really being able to, we, we didn't, but the things that were going through my mind were things like, let's just go tell your mom that we're going to be married now. And then, and then we can have sex, which is hilarious. Um, I just had forgotten about this kind of thing where like that was happening all the time for me. Yeah. Where I was like, it would be okay if we just like went and told your mom right now that we were like, you know what? We're going to be married now because it was that thing, you know, and the narrative I had was we already know that we want to build a life together so we can just go ahead and get married. Why wait? But I know that sex was an underlying unspoken pressure that definitely influenced, I think, how quickly it happened. I think we got married because like we were humans and we we're like, let's have sex. I just sometimes I wonder what would have happened if it I I don't think we would have gotten married if it had been more of like we can be together for a while and see how this goes. But in purity culture, there is no such room for experimentation. The idea here is that God brought this man and woman together in his divine wisdom. You're perfect matches for each other, so why would you need to see how things go? So, let's hear how things went for Annie when she finally got to experience the sexuality that she'd been lying awake at night burning to express. I have a condition called vulvodynia. Um, and it, it's actually kind of a broad term vulvodynia it basically means unexplained vaginal pain so i have this condition and even from the beginning of like actually having intercourse you know which i don't think was my wedding night i think it was like a maybe a couple days into the honeymoon or something it was super super painful and so then i sex was often painful and i just thought that's how it was and I thought that was normal. And it wasn't until, um, let's see, I got married when I was 20. It wasn't until probably I was 25 that I learned that it wasn't normal, which is a really long time. Yeah. Um, and it definitely had a negative impact on my marriage and on my relationship of just, like, I didn't know that it wasn't normal for it to hurt and I definitely fell into the category of doing wifely duties hmm. um you know which I wanted to please my husband or whatnot and so sometimes it was this thing that I just did you know and I appreciated the emotional connection of it but it was there it was still part of the shutdownness that I like I had this physical way in which it was shut down and this emotional way in which it was shut down. And um, I think that was a lot for a young married couple. Yeah. So. How long was your marriage? I was married for six and a half years. Okay. And sex was painful or uncomfortable for the majority of that. Yeah. I think so there was an affair Describe that day. What happened? How'd you find out? I was watching a, some uh, kids for a friend of mine. I had just gotten a cell phone and I really hated it. Um, this was in 2009. 
And so I was over at their house and my phone kept ringing and I just kept ignoring it because I was like, I'm going to just be present here. And then finally another friend came over and got me and she was like, you need to come home like now, you know, like we walk back down the stairs and we don't live that far away. And so I get into the car with her and she drives me. I like, I remember the color of the sky. Um, like who was in the intersection as I was driving home. Cause it was just like, something's really wrong. And dinner before that had been really, really weird. Like, um, with my husband, he seemed like sick and I was like, are you okay? And I didn't know that other friends of ours had just figured out that these two people were having an affair and had confronted them. Then, you know, I walk up the stairs of the, of our house where he's waiting in the living room you know, and he makes a confession and my, in this confession, like my whole world just like falls apart. And yeah, I just like sat in this rocking chair, staring at the clock, watching the sky get darker and darker, trying to sort of figure out how I could undo like what had just been said or how I could save everything. And that wasn't possible. I wish I didn't know what day that was, you know, but it was May 5th, 2009. This year, May 5th came and went and I kind of like knew about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't very big. But every May, I still like the weather feels a very specific way. And I, I feel like that my world came crashing down. Because it did. Yeah. My world and my social world was completely thrown into upheaval because this happened in such a tight-knit group of people most aspects of my life changed i experienced it as trauma yeah and it's a very that's a completely traumatic experience yeah. to happen and it's difficult for me in some ways that i experienced it as trauma because i partly am suspicious that purity culture made it a worse trauma than it had to be um, and I cannot, un I can't go back and change the fact that I experienced it as trauma. I got married with all these ideas of sex as a promise. And it's also a redemption. Like my marriage specifically was going to be a redemption. That was very devastating. And that was, that was sort of when I think you could tell the story or I could tell the story of purity culture coming to a massive head and a sort of explosion because I had embodied purity culture in almost every way possible of like only kissed even one person and like that was a huge part of my story of like we're the only people that we've even kissed yeah. you know and there was a sense of I mean it was it was a romanticized story that I had um we were the only people who had we'd only ever even kissed each other we you know were married we were going to break all these cycles like we had sex as a promise um you're kind of like the gold star yeah like i gold star gaze totally like i gold star virgin check 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 i mean we almost had intercourse before we were married but but you didn't but we didn't <gasps> see gold star yeah and you know i confessed it to my friend too is you know? your same friend that confessed masturbating to no it was a different friend okay yeah different friend um, That's and just to highlight how common, uh, <laughs> confessing sexual sin is. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I need to confess this to be clean of it, you know, or whatnot. God, I just, I'm having a thought 
Yeah. Um, that because you can't have sexuality mm-hmm. even with yourself and you can't have sexual intimacy with another person talking about mm-hmm. sexuality is taboo except in this one way right and the only way you can talk about it yes is confession and that is yes. a form of intimacy i just kind of wonder if um if it kind of takes the place of sexuality in a way or a sexual intimacy mm. by like having, cause it's, it's an emotional experience where, mm-hmm. I mean, you were just describing your friend, like coming to you in tears, just yeah. like, I mean, you're just, you're all worked up. You've got yeah. this thing weighing on you yeah. and that in a way, like this build up of like, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm such a bad person. Like, mm-hmm. and then, Mm-hmm. Like the confession is a climax of its own. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that's brilliant. That's it's just a thought I'm having right now because I'm, I'm thinking about like, you know, and there can be like tears. There's like water spilling out, like ejaculating. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. No, I think like... that that is <laughs> that is definitely one of the things that happens because then you have this relief after you've confessed it. I've been reading about prohibition, and I'm not terribly far into it, but I've been reading Rene Girard, who is a cultural anthropologist, and kind of one of his his ideas, one of them, is that prohibition exists so that people will not imitate behaviors that are seen to be a threat to whatever society or whatever whatever values you know are values exactly so for example it makes me wonder kind of so what would be at stake if people are having sex before they're married or outside of marriage it's a threat to marriage itself which there's such a fear of harming this institution that there's all these all these prohibitions that end up coming with it and once you i mean once i ended up divorced I notice I use a lot of distancing language, like there was an affair (laughs) once you are divorced. No, once I got divorced, like all of that stuff, I had to face all of it. And even in the process of working through an affair, because we were together for another year and a half, like really actually trying to make it work. Yeah. Like I had to let go of all of my story. Like now, now my husband has had sex with somebody else and that doesn't define him or me, but it took a long time to get there. Like that was a really big betrayal yeah it was the word betrayal i think was like floating here and i kind of wanted to bring it in so i'm glad you did Mm -hmm. i feel like because it's like a long time ago for you it can be pretty like you can be a little bit cut and dry about it like there was an affair and then there was a year and a half where we tried to work on it but that had to have been an earth shattering yeah and i think thing for you yeah it in the spirit of you know, getting, not being so distanced from it or telling some stories about what that was like. Um, I mean, that was like learning to have sex and dealing with just like the constant influx of like imagining my friend having sex with my husband and just having to figure out how to like let that go. I couldn't stop that from like overpowering me. So I think what I've come to understand about it is that the real betrayal was actually more the lying 
Well, yeah, if the, mm-hmm. it had been going on for like eight or nine months. That is that a long time? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, it was a long, that was a long time. And the thing that's hilarious, I usually just resort to comedy because it is actually really funny. Um, it's a coping mechanism. Right. <laughs> is that like we started going to marriage counseling right around the same time that the affair started and we had this internal narrative between ourselves of, okay, I actually have a lot of the issues that need to work on. He's mostly fine that I have a ton of issues. And so I started going to therapy on my own and working through a lot of stuff, like a lot of the sex repressed stuff, which was good. Like it was really helpful and stopped feeling guilty about sexual desire. And even just like, you know how sometimes like, you're just really happy like in a situation like maybe you're out with a bunch of friends and you're like oh I've known my friends for so long I love them and there's like kind of this little urge of like sexual desire that like wells up in you I think learning that that's not that's not like weird that's just like joy well yeah that uh leads me to some curiosity sure about because I just think um there's something so majorly mm-hmm. wrong with the purity model in that mm-hmm. you're told don't look at your sexuality don't mm-hmm. access it don't experience it don't know it mm-hmm. and so if you don't know your sexuality mm-hmm. how do you know who you're attracted to mm-hmm. and i was going to ask were you attracted were you sexually attracted to your husband yeah yeah absolutely very much so Yeah, I think what I experienced was like, I, okay, one, remember at this time early on in my marriage, sexuality is still, still has this temptation framework. Like any feelings outside of that still fall into that purity culture category of this is a temptation. I need to like overcome it somehow. Um, I need to, I need to pray this away. But what was happening was I felt like I was just attracted to the whole world and it was exhausting. Feelings of sexuality come up everywhere. And I cannot constantly or possibly keep up with like dealing with all of this quote unquote temptation. Um, And so, I mean, one of the things that ended up being super helpful is, I mean, in therapy, one, it was just like a normalizing of like, this is human. And often like there's all sorts of things that are like, it's just so normal. Like I got into this place where somebody could talk about it with me and it was just so normal. And I made myself tell my therapist, everything, all sorts of things. I didn't care like how uncomfortable it was. I was just like going to talk about everything. You know, it was very helpful. And that was, I mean, getting to the point where I could actually accept my own sexuality. I think either for listeners who grew up in Mm -hmm. the church or for Mm -hmm. listeners who have never stepped foot in a church, the going from the flesh is evil, you are bad, every desire in your body is sinful, Mm -hmm. to your body is normal, sex is healthy, it's totally normal to feel this way about somebody that Mm -hmm. you love, it's totally normal for this feeling to be coursing through your veins. That's just a very, mm-hmm. it's, it's a like a night and day transition, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, it was, it would, took a lot of work for me to like say all the things that I said, mm-hmm. but it was like, it was worth it. Yeah. It was definitely helpful. And one of the things, uh, just for storytelling or personal stories, so like we had gotten into this routine, like probably by year four or something, like it was, I mean, it wasn't like 
it wasn't always routine. Um, I have some very good memories of like creative, fun sex. So I don't want to paint this picture of like it was always bad and it was always painful. It's just that this was definitely one of the overarching themes. And so like, for example, we had a pattern of like who initiated like by kissing or like and then who would kind of take it to the next step and like when would the condom come out and like then how would penetration happen like all of this stuff there was sort of like a set script that we got into the habit and not veering from it and one of the most helpful things that my therapist said was the way you do sex is the way you do life and so there was a way in which a lot of me was shut down and like a lot of me was just doing life as a duty Mm. and part of the year and a half of after the affair um because at that point it was that summer that the affair happened that I also like uh finally had a gynecology appointment where my doctor was like look this is not normal and I just like after I found that out I just like wept in my therapist's office for like I'm actually not joking I just like had my head on the side of the couch and was weeping for probably like 20 minutes of just like I didn't know and maybe I could have prevented all this which that's that's bargaining or whatnot but it felt like I this thing that wasn't supposed to be like I thought it was normal and it wasn't then at that point like I had like a good doctor who could help me like do pain management and like I had a really good therapist who was helping me with all sorts of stuff And I feel like I really, like, started to open up, like, I wasn't afraid of sex anymore. Like, like, that was part of the path I had to take is not being afraid of sex. Mm -hmm. Um, And not being suspicious of sex, which I think is part of the sex is evil framework, is that we are suspicious or taught to be suspicious of it, like, not trust it. This idea that sex is evil that it's dangerous that you should be suspicious of it you should be suspicious of even the feeling inside of you again that's back to that temptation um that's something that needs to be addressed really quickly because it'll lead you in all sorts of paths or whatnot when purity culture crashed for me of like i now was married to somebody who had had sex with somebody else that was a big thing that i had to learn how to incorporate that into my story like All of these things of like the gold star of purity culture, like that didn't exist for me anymore. And I couldn't even run to that as any sort of safety net. I had to shift my narrative really and be like, oh, this person actually doesn't belong to me. Even though we're married, we do belong to each other, but we don't belong to each other. We don't own each other. And so there was a way in which I had to accept my ex-husband doesn't even like a bigger, more whole person that wasn't about me, which I think I'm super grateful for. Like I'm, even though it didn't work out and that year and a half was hard and painful, I'm glad that I at least tried because I feel like, I feel like I benefited a lot from, from that year. And we had very good sex that year for the most part. What did that year and a half give you Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have otherwise had? The transformation for me was that I don't own this person's body and this person doesn't own my body, like I actually have to be responsible for my own sexuality. Um, 
And also what it means to not own this person is like this person has a bigger story that's not about me. And so sex then becomes a meeting of two people, like a sacred meeting and not just uh, not a right. Having that shift into. okay, like it's a meeting of this person and I'm curious about who this person is. It's not about me. That was super helpful. And just letting go of my narrative, my my safe purity culture narrative and saying like, you know what? My ex-husband is not defined by this action thing that happened. This is not this is not define him, which part of what ends up happening with sex being such a heavy sin is that it ends up like being defining like a defining characteristic of people. And so being like, nope. This is not this does not define him. That was also super important. Yeah, in the end, he didn't want to stay married. And I have my speculations of why, but I don't really I don't really know everything. Did he not he didn't give you a reason? I think he stopped being attracted to me. I also think that he felt so guilty, you know, and he ended up losing his best friend and he had to watch me basically have the biggest breakdown that a human being could possibly have. I just don't, I don't think that he really forgave himself. And by the time that we were, the marriage was ending, he was actually mean to me when, when he left, like that was really sucky, but it, that was really sucky. It was really sucky. <laughs> um, what I'm trying to get at is that I think it would be good to jump to the grief process. Yeah. So yeah. I think that is natural because uh, something was alive and then something died. Yeah. And it, it feels like there was the, the trauma of finding out about this affair and then trying to heal from that and it not working out. And then the the second loss a year and a half later of of him leaving, jumping into having to learn to be a single adult without that marriage identity was excruciating. I just got to active grieving, which is like I had to do something with it. So I brought some of the things that I created. So one of the things I did was have basically like a funeral, a very odd funeral, because it involved a dance party, but it was like a sort of celebration with my friends. Obviously, he wasn't there. Um, this is how I got through my first wedding anniversary without him. Oh, the funeral was called the commemoration dance. That's what it was. I, I see here, I'm like flipping through these these artifacts from that dance, which was um, in 2011, so six years ago, and fading from my memory, but it was called the commemoration dance. So then had a picture of us dancing together because we had a really good time dancing together. And I think in this picture, I can see that like there were times where he liked me like it wasn't all bad. It was important for me to not just throw the whole relationship out as this one thing as like all the bad things. And that was what this commemoration dance was, was like this was not all bad Um, or this was not all painful, that there was a lot of joy. There were a lot of joyful moments. But um, one of the other things I did was I just like wrote, I took a Sharpie and I just like started writing on all of like the picture frames in in my room or like 
I wrote on broken guitars. I wrote on all sorts of things like pieces of wood and photos. But what you can see here is Sharpie on all sorts of mediums of just like poems about brokenness. One of the things I did with our wedding album that were was similar. I took a Sharpie to it and I just started writing on the photos. I wrote this thing that says a story with hope, a story that could have been redemptive, ended with more brokenness than it started with. And it's not the end of my story. And that's sort of the summation of this crashing of the purity culture of like, I thought our marriage was really going to break a lot of cycles. We had a really amazing social group, um, a lot of really close friends, and all of that fabric ended up broken. So it was like, not only in my mind, not only were, did we have broken biological families, but now like this new sort of family and this new situation that we had was also just completely crushed and having to just let go of all of that and be like, I still exist. I asked Annie to share how her views on sexuality have changed from what she believed as a teenager. I thought that I would be with one person my entire life. One of the phrases that gets said in traditional um, Christian wedding liturgy is what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And that was said in, in my wedding ceremony. And that was something that I just like repeated all the time. Like it was, I was working on creating like this reality with the internal things that I said as well. And I mean, look, commitment takes, takes work and like there's hard times. So that's not, I don't think that's all bad. The point is that it didn't last. And now I've had sex with more than one person. And it's okay. The way I think about sex now is like sex isn't, I don't think about sex as a promise, which I actually had to let go of that even when I was still married, working through the affair. I think of sex as for sure a sacred act. And also like it's somewhere between the sacred and like a normal physical function like eating. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say the mundane. Yeah, where where it is a gift, you know, and it's something that I work not to grasp at. And I haven't had sex with that many people. Um, but it is essentially this like gift and opportunity to connect with another person. And it's like, I think one of the metaphors I think about it is, especially if I'm talking to people who just don't get how actually I could have been on the receiving end of an affair and like this betrayal and I could come out with this perspective that's seemingly unchristian to some people so like let's say that bananas like you feel better if you eat bananas that's really funny that i chose the most phallic fruit <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's go with it you can live without that but like let's say you just like as a person you function much better if you have that like potassium inside of you or or you you have the nutrients specifically of a banana like that's kind of how i experience sex is yeah, you don't you don't need it, but there's all sorts of ways in which humans need physical touch, like like for my mental health, for everything. Like my anxiety goes way down. But I think I think Christianity, the Christian tradition doesn't have very much to say to divorce people or really doesn't know how to doesn't know how to talk about what sexuality is if you're not inside of this one location of marriage where it's allowed um and so partly i want to like i've been trying to push that some 
in my faith communities and it's been really hard. I mean, I think for me, just deciding who I'll have sex with is kind of a discernment process of just like, who is this person? Who am I right now? Is this? Well, that's really empowering, Mm -hmm. actually. That to me, that sounds like agency where before Mm -hmm. it's like any determination of who am I going to have sex with is put in the hope chest. It's like, well, future husband, that's who I'm going to have sex with. And like, who does my sexuality belong to? Future husband belongs Mm -hmm. to future husband. Yeah. I think one of the things that Christians have a hard time understanding, especially in regards to what does it mean to be a person who practices sex outside of marriage in a thoughtful way is you're not just having sex whenever you want. Like there's this notion that to have sex outside of marriage is just to flippantly have sex whenever you want. And it's not that because there's, it's kind of the same in marriage or out of marriage. Like whoever your partner is might not want to have sex when you want to have sex. And that's just like a reality. I know. I'm all the time like at the park or whatever and I'm seeing these dilfs and I'm like, I want to have sex with him and he don't want to. I mean, he doesn't know who I am, but like, yeah, yeah, I'm experiencing that on the daily girl. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so am I like, and I think that that's part of grown up sex is like being able to know how to manage that. People are not objects. I'm not even an object. Sex is normal. It's also, it's a gift. And so that means you don't always have it. As we wrapped up the interview, I asked Annie if she had any closing thoughts on the topic. Well, maybe I'll say this, which is also something that is generally taught that to have sex outside of marriage is sin and that will separate you from God. And that is not my experience, that the relationship with God continues and God can actually handle it. I don't feel like I'm ever hiding anything from God. I'm like, God can handle it. I can handle it. But I don't know how to incorporate that into It's hard to figure out how to incorporate that into Christian groups where my experience is Christians are really wanting to find a way to be sex positive, but it keeps circling back to it's only allowed in this one location and everything else is prohibited. And like that still tells a certain story that's not quite sex positive. That's really powerful, though, that your experience isn't that sex outside of marriage separates you from God mm-hmm. that I mean you didn't go as far as to say that it could bring you closer um sure why not even if I'm having sex by myself I assume like God is present and that it's not like a, a problem thing it's just like this normal part of life when I do masturbate I actually try to not focus on other people just because for me, the value of not objectifying people is kind of high. So it kind of depends. Like, obviously, I'm a person. So mm-hmm. I don't beat myself up over any sex things, really. Um, so that in and of itself is amazing. <laughs> really, like thinking yeah. about like where you've come from. Yeah. Like to at this point, be able mm-hmm. to say, I don't beat myself about up about any yeah. sex things. That's liberation. That's yeah. That's a lot of a lot of hard work you've done. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there are things that don't feel good. Like it doesn't feel good to me to grasp at people and just be like, I want this, I want this or how can I get this? Like that doesn't feel good to me, so I generally don't do that. But not that I haven't. It's just that it didn't like I didn't like it. 
So um, my underlying assumption is that God is present at all sex encounters, and I think it's part of actually God making more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a big sentence. I don't know if I can fully unpack that right now. Well, that's really beautiful. Thank you for coming here and sharing yeah. your story with me today. Thank you for listening. Talking to Annie was really powerful for me on many levels. I initially met her at a friend's wedding, a hard event for a recent divorcee to attend, and we bonded over being the rain clouds gathering at the edges of the wedding parade. She told me about the grieving rituals she did after her marriage ended, one of which I forgot to ask her about on tape. Annie was inspired by the story of a woman who wrote to an astrophysicist every time a star died. Dear sir, I regret to inform you that star number 01235 has passed on. She used this as a template to soothe herself when her dreams of marriage, family, and other connections died. Dear Annie, I regret to inform you that opportunity XYZ has passed on. This interview was also very impactful because it answered a question for me. Because my ex and I had been sexual and lived together before our wedding day, and because we both abandoned the Christian faith at some point in our marriage, I had always had this sort of what-if question lingering. What if I did it wrong? What if our marriage failed because I didn't follow the rules correctly? Well, you couldn't have done purity culture more right than Annie did. And turns out, you can't earn a perfect marriage. Life happens, we pick up the pieces, and rebuild. The Post-Purity Project is written, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Maggie McKay. Sound engineering help from Eric Jonasson. Website and ENFP wrangling from Jana Busbin. All music is from the 2009 album Triumph by Casey Burge. Happening